I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and find the second Psalm. Find the second Psalm, Psalm 2. And after you find that, I want you to put your finger right there, if you will. And then I want you to find Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verses 2 through 7. If you can kind of navigate that with me this morning, find those two passages and just kind of hold them. In a moment, we will read those. As God today reminds us that we have a victorious king that we have come to celebrate, a victorious king that we have come to exalt. This morning, as we were getting ready, my seven-year-old said, I get to wear fancy clothes today. I said, that's awesome, buddy. I mean, really, I I don't think that you have a great affection for fancy clothes, but I'm proud you get to wear them today. He said, this is the second time. (laughs) What? The second time? When did you have the first time? Last Easter. Buddy, we put you in fancy clothes. Do you want fancy clothes? We'll let you wear. But, you know, we were thinking about that this morning. Certainly, many of us have dressed our best and we've come in such a way. But get this. Today is not about the way we are dressed physically. Today, it is about the way we have been dressed spiritually through Jesus Christ. Today, we come to celebrate the victorious king. <clears throat> the one who has overcome everything. <clears throat> The one who has overcome death, hell, and the grave itself. And the one who has clothed us in his righteousness. To be able to walk with him and to celebrate him today. I pray that you feel that here in this place as we worship him and as we give him the tribute he deserves. It's amazing how even even hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago, the psalmist could see very clearly, very plainly as God moved upon his heart. He could see this victorious king that was coming. Look, if you will, in Psalm 2, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 25, this psalm was written by David as he reflected upon kingship, as he reflected upon this idea of the victorious king. And this is what King David said. He said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And then Matthew's gospel tells us, Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. 
His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Psalm 2 has been classified as a coronation psalm. In other words, this was a psalm that was used at the time when the king was coronated, when the king was ascended to the throne. This psalm somehow would speak to the real reality of God and his work in the king's life. Notice here again, I said David is credited with writing this psalm. And in the very beginning, David recognizes that there are those who are opposed to his kingship, to the kingship of Israel. Notice in those first few verses of that psalm, it talks about the nations and how they rage against God's people. How the nations rage against this king and how they plot, how out of envy they try to see how they could test this new king. Well, David... Certainly, as he wrote this psalm, perhaps for his own coronation, he recognized the nation's rage. He recognized how they were pushing against the nation of Israel itself. Back then, when a new king would come upon the scene, they would often be tested by all the nations that were around. They wanted to see what kind of will this new king had, what kind of power this new king had. They would just kind of test their limits. Oftentimes they would gather together because they did not want this new king, especially the king of Israel, to succeed in their area. So they would all kind of gather around. They would plot together. They would talk about what they could do. They would take counsel to see if they could stop, maybe even overthrow this new king or push back against Israel itself. That was the reality of the day, that the world hated the king of Israel. It was the reality of David's life and he knew every every day every day that the nations were plotting. We see that throughout the Old Testament. And we recognize that not only were the people plotting simply against the king of Israel, but I am convinced that there was some type of satanic empowerment behind that. In other words, Satan has always gone against God's people. He's always seeking to destroy God's people. And for the nation of Israel, you would see them pushing against all of this hostility and opposition. Well, it had been foretold. If you read the book of Genesis in the very beginning, after Adam and Eve sinned, you remember that it was there that... It was prophesied, it was predicted that the seed of the woman would be in direct conflict with the serpent himself. That there would always be this enmity, there would always be this opposition that you would find. It played itself out in the life and the nation of Israel as people would attack God's people, in a sense, trying to challenge God and his authority. The nations would rage. But we're told as well in the New Testament that these verses speak 
about Christ himself. Not only did it speak about that time, David and the rulers of Israel, but also this psalm not only is a coronation psalm, but it is a messianic psalm to look forward to the Christ, to the one that was coming. Notice again, if you read the first few verses of this, verse 2 in particular, it says that they are standing against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed. The idea there is Messiah, the king, the one who has been promised. Of course, in the Old Testament, this idea of Messiah spoke to the anointed one, that one which would come and he would rule Israel. In the New Testament, we have the same kind of language, but instead of using Messiah, we often use the New Testament language, Christ. Messiah, Christ, means the same thing. Two different languages. The anointed one. In Acts chapter 4 again verses 24 through 28. As the people of God gather together after they have been instructed not to preach the name of Jesus or speak the name of Jesus. They gather together collectively and they offer a prayer to God. And in that prayer they recognized that these verses, these verses from Psalm 2 actually speak about the opposition that came against Jesus. Specifically, it names Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, the nation of Israel. It really talks about how all of them gathered against the Christ, the anointed one. The early believers interpreted this passage in such a way to recognize that Jesus had found opposition from Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the nation of Israel itself. They had plotted. They had spoken in vain against him. That's the way it was interpreted in the New Testament. That is the way we see the, the armies of Satan himself coming against Christ. And I am convinced... That as Christ went through those trials, as he went through the suffering, as he went through the cross, I am convinced that Satan and his armies were marshalling together all of the force and all of the might that they could. Because they thought in some way, if they could destroy the son, the anointed, the king, if somehow they could destroy him, then their kingdom would stand and their kingdom would prevail. I'm convinced that they thought that. I'm convinced that behind all of these individuals, Satan was trying to orchestrate his own way. But get this. While they rage, he reigns. While they rage among themselves and how they plot, the God of the universe was still reigning and he continues to reign today. This is what the psalmist says. The psalmist says in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. So here's God. How is he pictured? He's pictured above and beyond everything else, above and beyond the nations and their plans. This God is sitting on the throne. And today you need to know he still sits on the throne. And you don't ever forget that. No matter what kind of plans, no matter what kind of nations or rulers try to come against his kingdom, he still sits on the throne. 
And notice the way the psalmist describes him. He is sitting on the throne. He is watching everything that's happening. He knows what's happening. And he laughs at the futility of their plans. Have you ever sat back and watched somebody like try to put a plan together? A plan that you knew was insane. You know what I'm, I mean? You knew the plan was not going to work. It could have been something simple about trying to put something together. You know, we guys, we probably are the ones that need to be indicted upon this, right? Plans that are insane. Oftentimes, we don't read the plans or the instructions. That's the reason we put together insane plans. But, but maybe, maybe we try to come up with something. Oh, this will work. If we do this, this will work. Some of us remember college days. We came up with some of those plans. In particular, you know some of these guys, right? Most of the time, their last name is Walpole, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> not their tires, not their blueprints, nothing like that. Don't worry. I don't want to get sued by talking about their business. But, you know, you, I've been out with them in the woods. I'm just telling you. Insane plans sometimes. You see, you look back and you think, that's never going to work. Some of you work with people like that in your company and you think, that's never going to work. Why are they doing what they're doing? But you just sit back and you watch. Get this. God is on his throne. And he watches the way these nations plan and the way they plot and the way they think they can overcome God's king. And he just laughs. He laughs in futility. Because he knows that nothing, nothing will thwart his kingdom purposes and plan. Nothing. You put the best of minds together. The best of minds together. And even as they try to plot and plan against God's kingdom, all they will see is futility in their lives. This is what's, I think, awesome about it. Is that if you again read Acts chapter 4 verses 24 through 28 that I spoke about earlier. The early believers recognized that God actually took the actions of these religious rulers and these political rulers. And God orchestrated it all together to fulfill his plan. And his purpose. Acts chapter 4 verse 28. It talks about his hand and his purpose. It talks about how God watches all of these individuals who plot against him. Who try to come against his king. Who try to, try to stop the kingdom of God. And these believers say, God, he orchestrates it all and uses it all. To fulfill his purpose. Now, did Herod know that he was fulfilling the purpose of Yahweh God? Absolutely not. Did Pontius Pilate know that he was fulfilling the plan and the purpose? No. But God knew he was using their actions. God did. God knew he was working. Last week you were here, and I spoke to you about that about that one truth that really grips me. There, there are a lot, but especially this one truth. And this is the idea that God can take anything and everything, something that was even meant for evil, 
and redeem it for his good. And to redeem it for his glory. I said to you that the cross is the prime example of God taking something that was to be tragic and horrific and turning it into something today for us that is redeeming and beautiful and grace-filled, the cross. God has a way of taking all of these things and working them together. Isn't that the truth of Romans 8, 28? That he's able to take all things and work them together. And here the nations rage. They stand in opposition against the king of Israel. They stand against the anointed one, the holy one of Israel. And yet, our God sits on the throne. He laughs at their plans because he knows that he can work in his own way to fulfill his purpose, that he can fulfill his goals for humanity and for the world itself. It says, the Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. <laughs> because get this. He says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He says, in other words, I am the one that's in control and I am the one that has set the king. Notice the God above, he is the true kingmaker. He is the kingmaker. He is the one that makes kings and breaks kings. And in this case, he says, I am setting forth my king on the holy hill of Zion. Though Jebusite side of the city of Jerusalem, Zion speaks to us about Jerusalem speaks to us about how God was setting up his kingdom, was setting up his king there. Well, you see their rage, you see his reign. But I want you to see how he reigns through his king in particular. Notice it says in verse 7, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you again hundreds of years before the coming of jesus this psalm david predicts under the inspiration of the spirit he predicts about this one who will come who will ultimately be known as the son of god now we know that as you read through this the coronation psalm this is that it's a king that the kings yes they all should have had a relationship with God. They all should have been somehow in this covenant with God and they should have reflected this sonship that God had established in their lives. But there is one unique, there is one different individual that will ascend to the throne. He will be in the line of David, but he'll be much greater than David or any of the Davidic lineage before him. And that will be Jesus who will come. And here you hear God the Father. God saying, you are my son. In Jesus' life. You remember the baptism? The baptism of Jesus? At that moment, the heavens opened. God the Father spoke. The Spirit descended as a dove. And what did God the Father say about this man named Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well 
pleased. The validation of his earthly ministry. Hey, this is Jesus. And he is my son. At the transfiguration, he will speak in a similar way. He'll speak about his approval of Jesus and his ministry. And he'll even say to the disciples, listen to him. Pay attention to what he is saying because he has my approval. He has been validated by me. But again, from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, verse 33, there is Paul is speaking in Antioch of Pisidia. He is speaking to the Jewish people that have gathered. And he says to them, he says, you know that second psalm? That second psalm that is there that was written that says, you are my son, that was truly fulfilled. It was truly fulfilled through what? The resurrection. Now get this. Jesus had already always been the father's son. But somehow this passage found its ultimate fulfillment in the resurrection. The father stated in the resurrection, you are my son. This is my son. He had stated it at the baptism, the transfiguration. But look, it was at the resurrection when Jesus when Jesus rose from the grave. Stop just a moment, folks. Can you get your mind wrapped around that one? Jesus rose from the grave. He overcame death itself. A body, a corpse that was there that was lifeless. He came alive. And the Father said in that moment as he was resurrected, This is my Son. And everything, everything that Jesus had said, everything Jesus had done, everything was validated by the resurrection itself. Now listen. Everything that God the Father did in Jesus' life was significant and important. Everything. The cross. The cross. Gave us the perfect sacrifice. The cross enabled us to know what forgiveness through his blood was like. The cross was so important. But understand the significance of the resurrection as well. Understand that it was through the resurrection that everything about Jesus' life was validated. It was through the resurrection that we could see the power of God and the power of Christ. It was through the resurrection that we could come to life. It is through the resurrection that we can come on the first day of the week, Sunday, come into this place and experience the power and the life of God. It was through the resurrection that we see His life and ministry Validating. We do not come simply to serve a martyr. We come in this place to recognize a living God. You are my son. The resurrection validates all of that. And he Demonstrates that he is the king. He is victorious. No matter what the nations do. No matter how they plot. No matter how 
they rage. He reigns. And his son reigns. So our response. Our response very simply. Found in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. The idea is we serve him. We trust him. The idea of kissing the son is the idea of paying homage to him as the king. It's so hard for us sometimes to really identify with this idea of of a king. I mean, we live today in a democracy. We go and we vote. We try to, we don't like certain things or policies. We decide we'll just vote in somebody else or we'll try to change certain laws. We'll do all kinds of things like that. It's hard maybe for us to think about the idea of a king and a kingdom. But what God calls us to do as we look at the Old and New Testament is to recognize that God is a king. He's not up for election every four years. He is the king. And you know what? He has legislated truth to us. He has given us his word. And he wants not only to be this God who is distant, but he wants to be a God who is imminent, who is there with us. A king who is great, And a king who is good. What God has called us to do as we come to recognize his kingship is to submit ourselves before him. He calls us to pay homage to him and to worship him and to trust him. This week I heard Dr. Jim Dennison speak. Dr. Jim Dennison is a renowned scholar and biblical interpreter, philosopher from Dallas. He offered this question to the audience that I was sitting in. He asked this question, is Jesus your king or is he your hobby? I had to stop and think about that a moment. You know, I'm one of these guys that likes to process things. Just kind of think through it. Now, what did he say and what is the meaning of that? And I went back and even found his website and tried to read a little more about that concept. And I know some of you say, oh, that's such a simple concept. It takes me a little while to get there sometimes. Just like to think through it, read. What is his significance behind it? Is Jesus your king or is he your hobby? If he's your king, then everything about who you are is transformed. Your lifestyle. I mean, if he's the one speaking to you about what to do and which, then what you do and what you don't do, it, well, that's affected by his kingship. What you keep in your life, what you give in your life, affected by his kingship. The way I relate to you and the way I relate to my family, affected by his kingship. Now, if it's a hobby, 
If it's just a hobby, if it's just something that I take up every so often or something I practice maybe one or two days a week, maybe I practice it on Sunday, maybe I practice... If it's just a hobby, it doesn't have a real transformative effect. But if I have recognized him as the king, then that means my Sunday has been affected my Monday has been affected, my Tuesday has been affected, all of my week and all of my life because the victorious king that I recognize calls for my devotion, worship, loyalty. He calls for my obedience. And I think that's what we need to be reminded of today as we celebrate the resurrection. The resurrection. As Matthew's gospel shared it with us, as he spoke to us about that one Sunday morning of where those women came to the tomb, they were confronted by the angel. Listen to the words again. Do not be afraid, for I know what you seek, that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here. He is risen, as he said. Those words echo throughout the centuries. And those words continue to echo in our hearts. If he is risen, if he has fulfilled that second psalm, if he has been coronated as the king, then he has called us to respond with service and homage. Our Jesus, who was crucified for our sins, who died, who rose again. Our Jesus is the victorious king. And he always will be. One of these days again, according to the revelation, when nations rage, when they continue to plot, just as they have all throughout history, this victorious king will return and consummate his victory. And declare to all that will see his greatness, his holiness, and every knee will bow. Get this, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He is the victorious King. Would we serve him and worship him? today. Let's pray. Father, we pause this morning and Lord, we worship you. We thank you for the life that you have given. Father, we are thankful for the forgiveness of our sins that has come through the perfect sacrifice of the cross. Lord, we are also thankful for the demonstration of power through the resurrection. The power that is able to forgive us of our sins. And to give us life each and every day. God, I pray that as we come to this place, as we know that the nation still rage, as the nation still plot against his people and against your son. Lord, Give us that sense of confidence today to know that you are on your throne, that you reign. 
God, help us to run to you, to pay homage to you, to love you and exalt you as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Lord, today we pray in this place that you're not just our hobby, but you are our king. And today, Lord, we want to obey you, worship you, exalt you for who you are. Be with us through this moment of reflection and invitation. Help us to wrestle with these things that have been spoken. Allow your spirit to work in our lives now. In Jesus' name, amen.